You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, April 7th, 2010, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Yo. And Evan Bernstein. Hi, everyone, and a very happy birthday to our dear departed friend, Samuel Hahnemann, founder of Home <laughs> April He gets died. stronger with each passing year that he's dead. Uh, <laughs> good one, Rebecca. Poison or something? Thank you. <laughs> Was <that> poisoned? <laughs> he died of having an illness in which he took some of his quote-unquote remedy, and... Uh, from not seeking real, some kind of real treatment, perhaps he perished of the ailment. So he took homeopathy? According to Randy, uh, at a lecture that Randy gave not too long ago, he said he probably perished taking some kind of concoction that he came up with himself. Mm-hmm. But not homeopathic. But I don't have an official word on how he died. Oh, hey, I got some friends together, and we wanted to uh, send out a little uh, song for, for, to mark this occasion. Okay, you guys ready? Oh, God. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Wag. Purveyor of oil salesman. Happy birthday to you. You smell like one, too. I got together with some friends and we sang him a happy birthday. That was a Malkovich, Malkovich, Malkovich. What the hell? That was creepy, Evan. I got together with some like minded people and we sang happy birthday. Evan, I think you need more friends. I, I liked it, Evan. I think I thought it was edited Thanks, very well. <laughs> I appreciate it. That was solid work, Evan. Solid work. <laughs> Took me an hour. Jay, tell us about <laughs> workers at Area 51 finally, after all these years, breaking their silence. Well, it's not so much that they, they broke their silence as much as they are allowed to talk about it now because so much time has gone by that it's no longer uh, something that they, they can't talk about. It's declassified. It's been declassified, exactly. So this particular person, uh, a guy named James Nose, uh, he claims that he worked at Area 51, which is in southern Nevada. Uh, he's 72 years old today. So he worked there uh, about 40 to 50 years ago. This was in the 60s. And uh, while he was there, they were testing the A-12 and the SR-71, which are both uh, spy Blackbird. planes. Blackbird. SR-71 is a sweet jet. Yeah. The thing yeah is, I was just reading about that today. How bizarre. I think with 3,200 miles an hour, I think. Yeah, nothing actually wow. uh, that we know of, nothing has gone faster than 2,200 miles per hour, about Mach 3.29. Oh, okay. Officially, which means it's probably faster. No, it's, right. gone, it's gone faster. I've read 3.3 something. I, I read once that when that plane took off, it would, it would leak fuel like a sieve because it, it, was, it ran so hot that once it got to operating temperature, the metal expanded and sealed nicely. But until that happened, it was like leaking fuel. Yeah, I, I read once that it took off from an airport and landed five minutes before it started. <laughs> That's fast. I have read, read uh, reports about how unbelievably powerful and loud those engines were once, they, uh, once the pilots punched them to take off. Uh, very, very impressive uh, jet plane there. If anybody wants uh, to read a really cool, the thing I was reading today was on Gizmodo and it was from a pilot who's flown it um, in Libya uh, during the Cold War and his story is absolutely amazing. So that's on gizmodo.com. Highly recommended. I'll check it out. 
But what does this guy have to say for himself, James? Yeah, to cut to the chase, I mean, basically he says, you know, he was there. They were testing these airplanes that nobody there that he knew and including himself, no one saw any kind of UFO or flying saucers or anything. When the rumors came about that there there was UFOs there or that they were covering things up or whatever, that the CIA, the CIA didn't care about those rumors because it, it kind of helped cover up what they were doing. He also admitted that... Um, that the CIA at the time was definitely um, scaring people into not wanting to be around the area. Um, and they were paying people off. Like if, if, for example, if they were moving a crashed plane from point A to point B um, and people saw it, or at one point he mentions that it, uh, the plane uh, like kind of crashed into a bus that was driving in the other direction. Cause it was this, you know, they had it on the back of a flatbed of some kind that they literally like paid people to not talk about it. You know, at one point he mentioned a briefcase with $25,000 in cash in it that they, they, were, they were giving someone. Wow. And he did mention this, this story, and I do remember hearing this about somebody, one of the pilots uh, dressed up as a gorilla and did fly upside <laughs> down over a pilot, you know, over a commercial, not a commercial pilot, a private pilot. And that guy, that pilot went back and told people about it, and everyone thought he was crazy. And, and whenever pilots did see these jets and they talked about it, Two other pilots, it was a ridiculous story. So a lot of these pilots that did see the jets flying around didn't really mention anything because it got kind of the, to the point where they knew that they were going to be ridiculed about it or made fun yeah. yeah. Are you sure that and, wasn't in Hot Shots Part 2? <laughs> I'm not sure it wasn't, but you know, apparently there are roots of reality here. Gotcha. Yeah, those are the, the two elements of this story that are interesting. One, no, no big surprise, there were no aliens at Area 51, and they were testing secret you know, Air Force planes and development there. That's no biggie. The, other, the, the more interesting part of this story is, the fa- is all the trappings of secrecy that were going on there, the intimidation and bribing of witnesses, the also pranking uh, civilian pilots in unexplainable ways, in other, you know, quirky ways that to that pilot, they saw something that made no sense to them. And the, the notion that it was just a, a whimsical act of an of a Air Force pilot who was pranking them is not the first thing that they would think of. It, it reinforces the notion that unexplained doesn't mean unexplainable, right? You always have to consider just because you don't know what something is, it could be something totally quirky, but, but still mundane. You don't have to invoke aliens. Well, if you think about it, Stephen, a, a pilot seeing an aircraft move unbelievably fast, I mean, faster mm-hmm. than anything back then, you know, people were not thinking that we yeah. had anything that can go that fast. Like, I can't and, blame. And higher. And, yeah. and, the, and that's important because the sound would not reach you for so long that you would mm-hmm. think it was silent. Yeah. This fast thing moving through the sky silently would, could be very eerie looking. Uh, this will not dissuade the UFO believers. And, not a bit. Uh, not not a bit. one. Nope. Not one no, bit. In, in fact, it may even embolden them further because they feel this is another layer of the Just cover part of the cover-up. Just part of the cover-up. Yeah, when I read this article, I'm like, man, they're just going to say this is a cover-up. You know, that's the, that's the MO here. Yeah, but you know that there's like one kid out there who researches Area 51 and finds this, and then instead of becoming a UFO researcher, he becomes a, you know, stealth pilot. I think that's right. You know, that's a hopefully that, it might happen. You know, it's a point. Uh, yes, yeah. it is worth it. Definitely, these report these reports are important for those listeners who didn't have immediate access to Google during that discussion. The top speed of the Blackbird SR uh, seventy one is um, Mach three point five. Hmm. Although um, there were unclassified tests that I think hit three point six. 
They turned it up to eleven. But That's yeah, three point three point five is what it could do, I think, in on officially a normal day. Yeah. Bob, tell us about Unanceptium. Russian and American scientists have created six atoms of a newly discovered element that will probably one day soon officially join its brethren on the periodic table of elements. This new super heavy element, temporarily called um, Unuseptium, has an atomic number of 117, which is which is what Unuseptium means. Right, right, and some yeah, 117. Like just, it. right. It's its temporary designation until it's official. When I right. read it, just printed, uh-huh. I assumed that it was just the opposite of uh, Unuseptium. Right. It won't. It won't become official until uh, a separate uh, separate scientist actually documented it. But the, from what I've read, this has been so well documented that it's you know it's almost a foregone conclusion. But the ele- this element fills the gap between the already created elements one sixteen and one eighteen. So you know, big deal. You may say this isn't even the heaviest one ever made. So what? But ah, I would counter that the latest. That this latest element continues to point towards a theoretical island of stability. Very interesting. When scientists started making these super heavy atoms that aren't found in nature, they found that the heavier the atom was, the less time it existed before decaying away. Eventually, though, this trend kind of reversed itself and they started hanging around longer and longer. So the prevailing theory now is that around atomic number 122 or so, that there may be this uh, island of stability where atoms are so stable that they could be studied extensively. You know, perhaps they would, they would hang around for days, weeks, months, or, you know, years. For all we know, right. So there's there's no way to determine what the chemical properties of this matter might be. So who knows what we may learn and what this matter could do. So interesting stuff. Uh, We'll definitely give you any updates, uh, but the next thing will be another lab confirming it, which could be a year or two, you know, so we probably won't hear anything for a while. Or or 119, who knows? Right. Uh, I'm going to give you a quick report on what I did last Friday. I was, I took a trip down to Bethesda, Maryland. You guys know what's down at Bethesda? Yep. Uh, the medical naval, uh, the Navy. Yes, the, uh, but also the z- National zombies. Institutes of Health, the NIH, oh, and there, a particular center, the National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine. Now, my colleagues and I at Science-Based Medicine have been highly critical of the NCAM, as it's called, uh, because of the nature of the research that it's doing. It's spending a lot of its money promoting CAM rather than doing proper efficacy trials. And when it does do proper trials, it has a limited impact on the the marketing because of inadequate regulations, etc. So we were a little surprised when not too long ago, uh, we were contacted by Josephine Briggs, who's the director of the NCAM, who said that she reads science-based medicine, she agrees with a lot of what we have to say, and she wants to have a face-to-face meeting to discuss our concerns about the NCAM. So that's what the Friday meeting was about. David Gorski, Kimball Atwood, and I uh, went down to Bethesda and met with uh, Josephine Briggs as well as several of of her staffers and had an hour-long meeting where basically she said, tell us your concerns. So we did. Oh, Uh, awesome. Yeah, it was was interesting. Did she end up just hugging you while you wept? (laughs) (laughs) Or Or the other way around. (laughs) Interestingly, you know, clearly you have to have a certain amount of political savvy to be a director of of an institution like that in the government, and that political savvy was in evidence. She was able to distance herself quite effectively from anything that took place at the NCAM prior to two years ago when she she took over. Mm -hmm. She said, I want to focus on going forward 
which is what po- politicians say when they say, I don't want to be held responsible for anything that happened in the past. <laughs> Good point. So fair enough, you know, and, and we kept it constructive. There's obviously a lot of stuff that is above her pay grade that it wasn't worth talking about, like regulation and things like that. So I'll, what I'll, what I'll do, do is go over the, the primary points that we hit, and uh, you can read in more detail on science-based medicine. But So one issue was uh, ethical concerns. There have been some trials that the National Center has, has funded and, and controlled that uh, had serious ethical concerns. The most significant one is TACT, which is a trial of chelation therapy in heart disease. The reason why this is unethical is because chelation therapy is not a benign treatment. There are significant risks associated with it, but it's already been extensively studied enough to conclude that it doesn't work for heart disease. It's a failed treatment. It is only still around as a treatment for heart disease because of dedicated ideological proponents who persist in promoting it despite the scientific evidence. And this notion of of studying it uh, is really just another way to keep keep it going forward. You know, we discussed that, but interestingly, what 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 we found out was that the NCAM has actually turned the trial over to another center at the NIH, uh, the NHLBI or the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. Now, it's appropriate for them to be running a trial on involving heart disease because that's that's their specialty. But not but curation. It, well, it doesn't matter what the what the modality is. I mean, anything that anything dealing with the lung, heart or the lungs, that's that's their specialty, right? So but you, it's still from that point of view, either way, it doesn't matter who's. Oh doing. yeah, this has nothing to do with the ethics of the trial. But what it did was it enabled Dr. Briggs to say, "This is no longer my trial. There's no point in talking ah. about it." So again, we sort of kind of sidetracked that discussion. Well, well you know, Kimball tried to get a, a contact essentially for the head of the NHLBI to pursue it with them. We'll see if anything comes of that, mm. but it's kind of like a passing the buck kind of thing. But it, the, the bigger issue of funding trials that of, of treatments that are not benign and are not plausible are, not, are in fact have already been shown not to work is, is ethically dubious, but that is occasionally what goes on at the NCAM, whether or not they pass it off to another center. So that was one point that we talked about. Another one is uh, has to do with the types of studies that are being funded. And this is a topic I think I've discussed before in the context of like specifically like acupuncture studies and other st- types of studies, is the difference between a observational or pragmatic study and an efficacy trial, right? An efficacy trial is a double-blind placebo-controlled trial or some similar type of rigorously designed trial designed to tell whether or not a treatment has any specific effect. Whereas a pragmatic trial looks at how is it used in real-life practice and what are the practical concerns, compliance and tolerance Mm. and and the effects when it's actually a, a physician prescribing it in their office as opposed to, you know, the homogenized ideal uh, situation of a clinical trial. Those two types of studies work in concert. The problem is you really should only do pragmatic trials of treatments that have already proven efficacy. It's really nonsensical to do a pragmatic study of a treatment that has no proven efficacy. And it's actually deceptive to present a pragmatic trial as if it is evidence for efficacy. But that's what's happening a lot with the studies that are being funded by the NCAM. Ugh. And you know, acupuncture is, is the, the best example where they, they actually did pretty well controlled efficacy trials and they showed no effect for acupuncture. So they basically said, well, you know, nerds to that. You know, we're not going to do 
trials that can prove our treatment doesn't work anymore. We're going to do pragmatic studies because that's how right. acupuncture is used in the real life, and that because that will generate the false positive results that they want. So you know, our concern is that NCAM is basically a funding organization for that kind of abuse. Related to that is the notion that uh, the NCAM never closes the door on any kind of treatment modality. Mm. We talked a few weeks ago about the how in the UK the House Common Science and Technology Committee did the fact check the real, uh, yeah the fact check homeopathy and they said homeopathy is totally worthless we should stop sp- spending money on it we should stop researching it it doesn't work and it can't work forget it it's done right the NCAM never does that about any kind of broad you know modality like homeopathy or energy medicine or acupuncture or therapeutic touch or whatever it's it remains perpetually open and here again Dr. Briggs was very good at wiggling out of things. She said that, well, since she has been there in the last two years, the NCAM has not funded any homeopathy studies, which is true. It's been like three or four years since they funded any study of homeopathy. But they still take applications for research into homeopathy. So what does that mean exactly? She's not closing the door on it, but she kind of has an out by saying that she, they haven't funded any studies, but they're still taking applications. So it's kind of an ambiguous position to be in. But but in essence, they, they don't have a policy of this is no longer worth spending taxpayer money researching. Uh, and that's a problem. You know, I think that, you know, whereas as she, she correctly pointed out, it's not their job to debunk or to be like the, let, the final word on scientific questions, but it is their job to decide what's worthy of researching. And uh, I do think it's appropriate to categorically close the door on certain kinds of research when it's beyond – Plausibility, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I I read your blog today, Steve, and I think you, you know you hit on all the main points, and I think it was a great way to uh, to start a dialogue. I mean, there was the meeting was very pleasant. They were very open. She, you know, affirmed a lot of our core principles, and it was mainly about how far has the NCAM come since she's been there, and she promises to make it more rigorous and to take it in a more scientific direction. And there are some very concrete things that she's doing which are positive, like allowing, a, I think, a, a more rigorous review process for studies, things like that. Um, the, the the final area, big area of concern was NCAM information, their newsletter, mm-hmm. their website, which you know, tries to be science-based, but leaves itself open for exploitation and gives gives a lot of false impressions. Again, they, they take a very wishy-washy approach to a lot of topics. So for, for most things where there is lack of evidence and plausibility, they typically say, well, people use it for X, and there isn't yet scientific evidence to show that it works for X. So it's very subtle, but by saying there isn't yet evidence to support it, but people use it for that and practitioners use it for that, is kind of a weak endorsement. Uh, even though they may be accurately stating, you know, what the evidence shows, it sounds like they're trying to make it seem like an off-label use of a per, of a prescription drug, Steve, or something. Yeah, like it's that. like it's like talking about it casually, like you might talk about, um, yeah, a slightly off-label use of a medication or something like that. Uh, meanwhile, they're talking about something that has zero scientific plausibility. Now, they because they're a government agency or a government institution, they have to abide by like FDA, you know, positions on things. So the NCAM will never say anything that conflicts with the FDA. So that constrains them somewhat. Um, so if you look at their position on things like colloidal silver, it actually falls right in line with the FDA's position. That's fine. But it's more the other things like you know homeopathy, acupuncture, therapeutic touch, where it's all just wishy-washy and easily gets exploited. And then on like the recent newsletter. While 
Dr. Briggs is taking a very hard line, like science must be neutral kind of approach. And then on the opposite page, there's a Chinese medicine medical doctor <laughs> using acupuncture for asthma, you know, a completely unscientific application right there opposite her saying we're science-based. Right, and the only, the wow. only difference between colloidal silver and homeopathy is that colloidal nobody really silver, uses yeah. colloidal silver. Like, colloidal silver yeah, that's is... That's not true. That's I, not true. It's still out there. I mean, obviously, there. obviously people use it. Obviously, it's being sold. But, uh, you know... For the most part, I think it's seen as a kind of weird uh, or minor. Alt yeah, I, mean, med I, I agree. It's on the fringe, even for Cam. I, I admit that, and I think that's because it's it's not benign. You know, it can actually cause argyria. You know, the gray or silver skin, and it, it's not a benign treatment. I think for from the point of view of the NCAM, the difference is the NCAM can't conflict with the FDA. That's the specific difference as a, whereas the FDA has nothing to say about things like acupuncture because it's not you know the, the FDA does not regulate practices only products so they regulate the needles but not the actual use of acupuncture whereas colloidal silver is a product that falls under the purview of the FDA so some subtle things you know in terms of how they phrase things and i think that again one concrete thing that came out of that I mean, Dr. Briggs said that she doesn't want the NCAM to be exploited to promote unscientific modalities. Good. You know, and we basically said, let us help you do that. And they did say that they would, they asked us that basically if we would be willing to review material that the NCAM produces, basically like peer review it. And we said, sure. So we'll see what happens with that. See if they do it, if they don't do it, if they listen to us, if they don't listen to us, it'll all be interesting. And we'll report on it on uh, science-based medicine. We'll see how it goes. Steve, you know, th this is very significant. I mean, the fact that they even noticed you and that she wanted to talk to you, that she, she liked science-based medicine. I mean, this is really the first significant step that science-based medicine has made. And, and I, uh, I, well, I mean, I think we've had impact in other ways, you know, in the terms of the media and whatnot. But this is certainly the biggest thing. Yeah, I mean, this is this is good. And it's also very savvy on her part. I mean, I think she's completely sincere. I think she's, a, you know, a serious researcher who has been given a very difficult task of of bringing an organization like NCAM with its very dubious history into a more scientific direction without getting her head chopped off, you know, by Harkin or whoever. So, you know, Tom Harkin's the senator who basically, you know, brought it into existence. Uh, so that's tricky. However... Interestingly, you know, as you know, we're calling for essentially the NCAM to be abolished. You know, so I, th I think from from her point of view, reaching out to us and and sort of making us part of the process is pretty savvy because now we're more talking about well, how do we improve the NCAM, not we should make it go away. And uh, and honestly, if the NCAM did all the things we think it should be doing, then I wouldn't really feel so strongly about it having to go away, right? If he actually was doing rigorous efficacy trials and not promoting CAM, then I wouldn't have a problem with it, you know? It's like Edzard Ernst. I made that, that analogy, I think, in the comments to my blog. He's a professor of complementary alternative medicine, so you might think, oh, he's, a, he's you know, a, pro a proponent, but he's so strictly science-based that he's, he reviewed the evidence. And he said, there's no there there. There's no evidence for homeopathy. There's no evidence for acupuncture. And the proponents are children. They're making all kinds of logical fallacies and abusing the evidence. He called it totally like he saw it. And even though he is a professor of complementary alternative medicine, he's like our biggest ally. Uh, the NCAM could evolve into that, whereas even though they're the center for complementary alternative medicine, if they are really studying it rigorously and trying to tie that into or inform 
regulation and the market, then I guess I wouldn't have a problem with it. It's really just it became a backdoor way of promoting uh, unscientific modalities. That's our criticism, and and that's why we would rather have it not exist than exist and promote unscientific treatments. Steve, uh, maybe I'm being cynical, but have you actually looked through like the NCAM blogs and any of their uh, output and like to see if they kind of misrepresented uh, your meeting with them, try to use you as a as some sort of endorsement that you probably wouldn't agree with. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, I have Google alerts and stuff. I haven't seen that they've published anything okay. about our meeting. And it was just on Friday. Yeah, I yeah. Think, you know, I'm just saying our our report is the first report of it. So, but yeah, if they do report on it, you you know that we'll read it, right? And and report on it. We'll we'll keep a close eye. It's which is really easy to do these days with yeah the internet. You just have a Google alert set for science based medicine or your name, and it's kind of hard to hide it. Rebecca, tell us about the good news about Simon Singh. With an introduction like that, I feel like I'm a Jehovah's Witness, and I've just, we've just <laughs> Steve and I have just knocked on the door of the listener. Rebecca, tell why us don't you the tell good him, news. Tell him the good news. <laughs> Hello, well, friend. well, Simon Singh is here to save your soul. Uh, if uh, our our astute listeners um, may remember that we we've talked about Simon a number of times in the program, he's being sued by the British Chiropractic Association the BCA for um, something Simon wrote uh, in an article for The Guardian. Um, he said that they happily promote bogus treatments, meaning things like um, chiropractic treatment for infants, for colic and things like that, um, things that had no basis in science. A uh, Earlier, a judge had ruled in the, in the case that when Simon used the word bogus that he actually meant that the BCA was knowingly perpetuating deceptive practices uh that Simon was making a comment on the BCA's intentions as opposed to what they actually do um this wasn't a definition that Simon agreed with um and if you read his article you may come to the same conclusion that I did um which is that Simon was simply saying that the treatments don't work uh, that there's no science behind them. Um, not that uh, they specifically know they don't work and are doing it anyway. So, um, and in fact, Simon's gone out of his way a number of times to say that that's not so, that some people um, are simply deluded. Some people haven't seen the science. Um, some people think that they're doing good, but uh, the science shows that they're not. So uh, the judge ruling that Simon, if he if he went forward with, the lawsuit, Simon would have to defend his words based on a definition that he didn't agree with. That was a huge blow to his case. Um, so Simon was able to appeal, and uh, on April the 1st, uh, which so many people, of course, thought it was a bit of an April Fool's joke, but it was not. Uh, the appeals court judge ruled that Simon's words were uh, considered fair comment, meaning an opinion, uh, as opposed to a fact. Um, previously, Simon would have had to defend it as fact, um, but now all he has to do is defend it as opinion. It's a bit, it's good news, uh, in that he stands uh, a chance of actually winning now. Um, it's bad news in that this means that Simon has to keep on fighting. Um, of course, this is 
this this court case um, has been incredibly expensive for Simon. He's already spent a hundred thousand pounds of his own money on this, and did he say two hundred thousand? Um, just the other day, he said a hundred thousand. Oh, so, okay. um, I read article reported somewhere. I'm not sure if. Uh, why the figure went down a bit. Maybe somebody okay. cut him some slack. But U.S. Yeah, versus uh, British, we're, maybe. We're talking a, a huge amount of money right now. And, yes. uh, and it's only, you know, it's only going to increase. You know, had the judge, the appeals court judge ruled against him, then Simon, you know, for all we know, probably would have just packed it in, settled out of court, and been done with it. Um, but the fight now continues, and the BCA released a statement that day um, saying that they were prepared Way. to continue. Uh, it was it was quite an amusing statement. Uh, One of the things I liked about what the judge has said is that, so in terms of the interpretation of the word happily, that it doesn't necessarily mean knowingly that it could have meant blithely, you know, and, right. and which is exact. I think exactly what Simon meant. By exactly. The word, happily, so it was that was astute of them. And yeah, the the judges, um, the the appeal court judge's full statement, um, the full judgment is really interesting, and you you can read it. I've posted a PDF of it on Skeptic, um, or you can go and index on censorship.org. The mm-hmm. the judge clearly knew his stuff, which was yeah. you know it's 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 always a relief, especially after the first judge. Basically delivered such a boneheaded, in my opinion, yeah. statement. Um, right. <laughs> so yeah, the uh, the BCA released a statement that day um, saying a number of things. One that first that they are not uh, trying to censor debate uh, as their opponents have been saying, um, but they're just trying to put things right. And and yes. The Guardian did offer them the opportunity to publicly defend their claims of science in The Guardian, uh, but the fact of the matter is they didn't have any science, so they had no choice but to silence debate through the court systems. Yeah. And if you recall, they, they actually put out a press release at one point where here's the scientific evidence to back up our claims. And I dissected it on uh, on my blog. It was crap. It was, right. had no evidence. They cherry-picked. They did all the things that Simon accused them of doing. They almost proved that they did knowingly support bogus therapies because they couldn't even produce evidence to, to produce their to support their therapies, and they, they, they left out the negative studies that proved that they don't work, which they had to know right. about if they, were, if they were compiling research. And it was that embarrassing. Was a, that, that episode was a great example of uh, the supporters of, of Simon throughout this, that uh, those studies, I think there were 29 of them or, or something like that, um, within 24 hours of the BCA releasing that statement, those studies were systematically dissected by blogs. And uh, so one of the things they didn't mention in their recent statement was that they have publicly stated that they'll be looking to bill Simon for the time that they spent dealing with the activists who've been inspired to take down chiropractors making fraudulent claims. Uh, If you'll recall, a group of bloggers did a wonderful job... um, basically destroying chiropractors here in the UK by Googling um, 
all of the chiropractors in the BCA, checking out their websites and reporting them if they were making any fraudulent or misleading statements. And because of that, the BCA has had to increase the amount of money they're spending by a tremendous degree. I don't have the numbers right in front of me, so I apologize, but they, they've had to hire extra help just to deal with them. And one out of four UK chiropractors is now under investigation. Um, so they're planning to punish Simon for that if they manage to win this. Um, and so they say in their recent statement, they do say that they're going to continue with the court case despite the setback. Um, and they say that, you know, no matter how bad th- this makes them look, they were only following the advice of their lawyers. And so right. they're going to continue to do that no matter how terrible it makes them look. So they're pretty much knowingly driving their entire organization into the ground. And I believe that we will all happily watch that happen. Dance on their grave. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> All right. Well, that's very good news, and we'll, and we'll definitely keep following this story. Also, we should mention, while on the topic of Simon Singh, that he did recently uh, have another much happier result um, in that he has a new baby boy named oh. Harry. So, well, Congratulations, Simon. Yeah. I bet you a chiropractor was not there at the birthings. To, uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Although Simon did tweet immediately... Uh, the baby's time of birth and everything. So I made him an astrological chart, uh, which unfortunately oh. says that he's going to be um, an asshole. But <laughs> I've, I've posted it on Skeptic and I sent it to Simon. He seemed um, thankful, grateful. Have you guys heard about the copper magnetic Jesus bracelet? Have Seriously. I heard? <laughs> I'm wearing it right now. <laughs> It, Copper, it, it, huh? soothes, it soothes both my physical pains and my spiritual pains. That's right. It's got three pseudosciences wrapped into one. Yeah. Huh. Copper magnetic. This is from, uh, yeah, Orac sent this to me. He, he, he blogged about it on Respectful Insolence. It's just, it was too funny not to talk about. So, yeah, it's got the word Jesus printed on it. So I guess that's supposed to convey the healing power of Jesus just by having the name Jesus written there. Uh, but th- I also found it very amusing to combine, again, two pseudosciences, the, the copper bracelet, which there's no benefit for, and, and magnetic bracelets, which also there's, there's no evidence to support any therapeutic claims for, for magnetic bracelets. But bring w- those two together. Who? Bring those two <laughs> yeah. together, yeah. You got copper in my now, magnet. You got magnet in my okay. copper. Can you bring them together? They, they claim that there's 3,000 Gauss magnets in there, but I, I tried on their their published material to figure out where the magnet is because, of course, copper yeah. is not ferromagnetic. <laughs> uh, it uh, can't details, be magnetic. Details. So I guess they could have a ferromagnetic magnet embedded in there yeah. somewhere, but yeah. it's it's not the whole bracelet. It's got to be some just small piece of it or something. But I, di- I did want to go over very quickly because I thought, this is kind of a stupid item, but it would be fun to talk about what metals can be magnetic, copper not being one of them. Uh, do you guys – there's actually only three uh, common metals, so not including the rare earth metals, but three common metals that can be ferromagnetic. Do you know what they are? Uh, um, iron. Iron is one. Steel. Well, anything no. derived from iron, steel counts uh, don't, We don't get uh, technical. Uh, <laughs> hmm. Mercury, no. Nope. Come on, we know. Don't we know? Brass. Nope. Nickel. 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 And? 
dime and, and, and copper. <laughs> <laughs> no, not copper and cobalt. Aluminium. Uh, that's cobalt. a color. That's it. Nickel, iron, and cobalt. Now, why cobalt. is that? Yes, copper is in fact diamagnetic. Now, diamagnetic are materials that are weakly repulsed by a magnetic field, <laughs> so they're slightly magnetic in the presence of a magnetic field, and they will be repelled by that a bit. Uh, but in the absence of an external magnetic field, they do not have any magnetic field of their own. Paramagnetic is similar, but it's attracted to a magnetic field in the presence of a magnetic field, but it doesn't can't hold. It's, it's the uh, opposite, then. Yeah, it's the opposite, right. And Steve, then, what, now, what about uh, adamantium with a... Uh, adamantium? Yeah. I don't, I'm not familiar with the magnetic properties of adamantium. Well, well obviously are. we know about the magnetic properties of it because Magneto ripped it out of Wolverine's yeah, entire that's body. True. That. Oh, that's true. Oh, good point. I forgot. So, that's true. Hello. I hate when that happens. Uh, ferromagnetic are, again, <laughs> nickel. And that's, you know... Cobalt and iron. That's from the books, not from the movie, in case that's you're right. worried about, you know... She's right. Yeah. And it, the, what what makes them they are able to by definition able to maintain a magnetic field in the absence of an external magnetic field, uh, and this is what you think of when you think of a magnet or something that is magnetic. The magnetic properties of materials come from electrons, right? An electron is a little tiny magnet, and so there's an inherent magnetic field in an electron, but also an electron you know traveling in its orbit also can generate an electric field. Now, in, in some materials, um, all of the electrons are paired, and the, elect- the magnetic fields will sort of cancel each other out. But in some substances, they have unpaired electrons in their outer shell, and it's that unpaired electron that can generate a magnetic field. Now, in, in material like water, you know, where the, where the, the atoms all flow, the, the random orientation of all the electro- electron spin, you know, and magnetic fields all basically cancel each other out. They will align themselves in the presence of an external magnetic field, but in the absence of that, they're random. But with iron, what happens is the low energy state is for the uh, the molecules to align up with each other and form little magnetic domains, and those magnetic domains can be randomly oriented, in which case you, you, you... you don't have a permanent magnet, but you can align them. There are actually several methods for doing that. One is you can heat it past its Curie temperature, and that's the temperature at which the orientation of the of the magnetic of the magnetic domains are then free to flow. And then w- while it's in the you know while it's heated up, you then expose it to a magnetic field and you hammer it basically to jostle. Uh, the the uh, the magnetic domains, and then they'll all they'll line up with the magnetic field, and then when they cool down, they'll be frozen in place, all lined up. So cool. Then you, have, then you have all the magnetic fields lining up, and you have one big magnetic field. You can also take an existing magnet and stroke it along in the all in the same direction over and over again on a uh, like a piece of iron or whatever, and that will put a weak magnetic field into it. Uh, you can also vibrate it a lot, and again, in the presence of an external magnetic field, anything which kind of shakes it up a bit can can in, in put a permanent magnetic field in it. One thing that's cool is that there are a few rare earth elements which are also can hold a magnetic field. One of them is gadolinium. Have you guys ever heard of gadolinium? No. No? It can't be a permanent magnet. It's actually used for MRI scans as a contrast material. 
So it's a magnetic contrast. You inject it into people when they have an MRI scan, and it will light up any areas where there's inflammation or any breakdown in the blood-brain barrier. Sounds cool. It doesn't add that. It's a couple hundred dollars or something to the MRI scan. So, but the bottom line of all that is copper is not ferromagnetic. Okay. Is that a big deal or? Well, not to Jesus. Well, let's move on to Who's That Noisy? Evan, play last week's Who's That Noisy, if you dare. I will play and I shall. For those of you with a good memory, you will remember this. He wasn't very impressed. So finally, he asked me a few questions, mostly how long did I work with this system and so on, and departed, saying a few words to the director of the laboratory. Later on, I found out that what he said was, put his guy to work on something more useful. <laughs> that although, was although Vladimir something. Yeah, <laughs> Vladimir... Zworkin. Zworkin. I'll mm-hmm. say it again. Vladimir Zworkin. Russian American. Oh, inventor, Uncle Vladimir. Engineer. Pioneer. Or Vlad, as we of, called him. Pioneer of television technology. And I was Vlad kind of surprised. The inhaler. I, I would have guessed that. Uh, I mean, this guy was, uh, you know, this was an old interview with this guy, kind of obscure, and I happened to come across it. And I thought it'd be really cool because I said, all right, I'm. You know, there'll be no real key phrases in there. No one's going to be able to really tag this. I think it'll be really hard. Sure enough, someone got it pretty quickly. <laughs> so, Trinock from the message boards was the first one to get it correct. He gets a lot of them, doesn't he? He does. What about uh, Philo Taylor Farnsworth? What, was, what role did he have to play? I thought he invented the TV. Yeah, invent, so what was Vladimir's role in it? He so invented- what, what I'm asking is, so I mean, the story I always heard was that Farnsworth invented the TV, but totally got asked out of the invention, died of, died in poverty, right? So they, did they, these two guys work directly together, or are they just independently contributing to the technology? I don't know the answer, but I, and from what I've read, I did not see any crossing of those two names. They apparently worked independently. I remember in my history books, uh, growing up through my grade schools, of um, Zworkin being credited mm-hmm. as the inventor. Of television, so that's why it's stuck in my mind. Yeah, I think he got most of the credit, but then um, the the uh, but Farnsworth yeah independently developed some aspects of it. And I think eventually, yeah. See, Philo Farnsworth made a uh, competing system and another yeah. different system. So they were independent. Yeah. Okay. Independent. That's that's, of that's, each that's other. what I'm reading as well. Yeah. Very interesting. What do you it got for this week? What do you got for this week, Evan? Okay, here is this week's Who's That Noisy. That's a kookaburro with a bulimia problem. Uh, oh, close. <laughs> close. That, that sounded familiar. Some, some horror movie I saw. I think if people go back and listen to that a couple times and try to pick up maybe some... The penguin? Well, no, no. No, we've done the penguin before. So uh-huh. we're not doing that maybe again. Maybe you've done a penguin before. <laughs> yeah, speak for <laughs> yourself, bud. <laughs> All right. So give it a try and good luck, everyone. Uh, let's go on to some questions and emails. They're all follow-ups and corrections this week. We've been getting a little bit behind on doing some follow-ups. Just, and we screwed up a lot of stuff. Yeah. There's just too many By news we, items. I mean, Jay. 
<laughs> well, the first one, this one's on Bob. This first one comes from Steve from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. And, and <laughs> Steve from Saskatoon writes. Yeah, Steve. In episode number 246, either Bob or Jay, it was Bob. Uh, wait, said, I, I listened. I think it was Jay. Paraphrased. There are it's more people tell, alive can today. Tell. All right, can I read the question? Said, there are more people alive today than have ever existed before. This is incorrect. Conservative estimates put the total number of Homo sapiens that have existed in total at just over a hundred billion, not including Neanderthal or Homo erectus, etc. There are just under seven billion people alive today, so we represent approximately seven percent of the total human population to have ever existed. The "there are more humans alive today than ever existed before" bit is a common misconception. What do you got to say for yourself, Bob? Uh, I'm. That's my story. That was Jay. It wasn't me. And uh, I'm sticking with it. Actually, actually, it's kind of funny because I remember years ago thinking what this guy is claiming, which is true because I've, I've since, of course, verified it over and over and over, and he's absolutely correct. But I remember thinking that, and then, and then I, somebody said that that was – that the truth – was a misconception, and I, I looked into it, and if, and so for years I believed that more people are alive today without ever thinking, you know, too deeply about it. You know, it wasn't such a big thing, and now I find out that of course I was wrong for all this time, and it's really annoying. So you know, even when you check what you believe and you think you're correcting yourself, you might not be correcting yourself. It's like annoying. Oh well. At the time, I, I thought that you were saying that there that more people have been alive today than have ever been alive at one time on the planet before. Yeah. Oh, which, really? Which, oh, nice cover which up guys cuz cuz none of you guys corrected me so I'm just saying that, okay? Um yeah, well that's cuz I, I didn't thought know you the answer. something that uh, would be right. I didn't know. <laughs> I could cover. Bob, I thought the same thing you cover. did. I, I I definitely <laughs> thought the same thing you did. I heard the same thing, you know. You know, um Elaine is a listener who wrote to me to Offer an explanation for why there there might be uh, how how reincarnation can work if there are so many people alive today. She said that, um, and this is what she understands from spending time with people who believe things like this, is that a spirit can travel in time. I'll I'll just it's so uh, crazy. I'm just going to read directly from her. Enough said. She, I get yeah, it. I know where, I know where she's going. But go ahead. Um, Spirits can travel in time and exist at the same time. Therefore, if a child is born today and he's the reincarnation of Julius Caesar and a child is born tomorrow and he was also Julius Caesar, that means Caesar lived as the first child, died, and came back in time to be reincarnated as the second child. Of course, the alien hypothesis is also true according to almost all of the adults I was around as a kid. So I'm sorry that Elaine had to spend so much time with such insane people but i'm thankful that she listens to the show and can yes. help us that reminds like me this. of a very entertaining science fiction book i read where we encountered a, a, a what we thought was an alien species that could time travel and working for them were these robots and there were thousands of these robots um that all were always you know going about doing whatever physical tasks they had to do and, and it turns out you know the protagonist of the book discovers at the end that in fact there was only ever one robot that would just, you know, travel back in time as many times as he had to. If a hundred robots were needed for a job, he would travel back in time a hundred times to do that job. You follow that logic, it's quite possible that there's only ever one soul that mm. gets reincarnated over and over and over and over again because it just keeps going back in time. Maybe we're, we all are the same reincarnated soul. 
I don't know about that, Steve, because if that's true, I would act a lot better than Tom Cruise. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe you're, you're uh, earlier in you're the more stream. Evolved. Yeah, or, or less evolved, yeah. Although, you know, he can, he's a much higher operating thetan who can probably control his salinity. And, you're and just sense hunger. And sense his own hunger, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's special. So, Jay, you might have been reincarnated from me, for all we know, right? That's what? very true, That's creepy. Steve. It's right. like being your own grandpa. So I have that to look forward to. Yeah, so that's you know, when you so dispense with all logic and reason, that's what it leads you to. All right, the next email comes from Peter... No, this guy's from Amsterdam. <laughs> Peter what now? Peter, J-A-N, how would you pronounce that in Dutch? Jan? Jan. Jan Haas. Jan Haas. Peter Jan Haas from Amsterdam, and he writes... I'm Dutch, so I have access to more sources on the story of the psychic Paul Van Brie, who was supposed to work for the Dutch Justice Department. Well, the Department of Justice claims not to know Mr. Van Brie. One journalist did call Van Brie for clarification. Van Brie told him his last he last visited the prison 1.5 years ago, although he wrote 1,5 years ago. The Europeans still don't get that right. The whole story <laughs> seems to go back to a one-off gig Van Bree did in prison several years ago on invitation of that particular prison. The Dutch Justice Department does not hire psychics on a structural basis. Of course, Van Bree is boasting on his website he is working for the Department of Justice. It's not true. The source of the story is the Dutch newspaper Telegraph, which is the Dutch The Daily Mail. I'm very surprised the British The Telegraph copied the story without checking the story. Not very skeptical, right? So, Evan, this was your reporting. Obviously, you were going on third-hand translated information. Yeah. So we, we're thankful for many Dutch listeners who have access, you know, more close access to the original reporting. And it turns out this isn't a story about malfeasance in the Dutch Justice Department, right. but about the self-promotion of one psychic. That's that right. is really yeah. what's so great about our audience is that we got like eight of <laughs> right. these emails that great. were oh, almost no. identical. <laughs> and they're all like, I'm Dutch and I listened to the show and I decided to research this. How awesome is that? that like is not smart. only it's do we have that many it's Dutch great. listeners. You know, also we, we crowdsource. <laughs> so what we have here instead of, like you said, Steve, malfeasance amongst the government – um, is we have the psychic, but we also have a case of terrible reporting. Yeah, <laughs> on, the, on the case of the uh, of the Telegraph. Yeah, and it's also and yet we you know we do have to to be more alert to this too that psychic you know alleged psychics will definitely try to exploit these kind of episodes for self promotion. They will try to you know weasel their way into a, a corporation or the government or a police force or whatever, and even and then take the most fleeting relationship. As any some kind of official um, imprimatur or endorsement, so it seems like that's what was going on here. Now, the other th aspect of this, Evan, you also mentioned that uh, the, the Dutch government forces people to do past life regression therapy, and one of the emailers said that that claim it was not sourced, and he doesn't think it's true either. Were you able to find anything more on that? Uh, well, one of our readers, I think, a couple of our listeners wrote us on that particular point and they actually tried digging into it in, locally in Denmark and they could not find a, apparently a credible reference to the source. Um, one of them said the only news story they could find about regression therapy was about a woman who wanted to follow regression therapy voluntarily and got the local council to pay for it. Yeah. And they think that maybe that was the 
you know, kernel of information that blew up into a, you know, a story about... That does sound a bit more like <laughs> About yeah, the government. Yeah. You know, threatening people to take away their subsidies if they didn't go for this uh, woo treatment. Right. So it's it's not as bad as we thought. It was like one guy being hired once uh, and then just a bunch of bad reporting. So thanks yep. to our astute listeners for digging into the real story. Indeed. One more correction. This is actually a correction to name that logical fallacy, which I'm going to parlay into another name that logical fallacy. Uh, a few weeks ago, I've been meaning to talk about this one for a while, we got an email from a, from a Giles Corey hmm. re- regarding whether or not we were committing a poisoning the well or ad hominem fallacy by pointing out that the Catholic Church is embroiled in the scandal, this pedophilia scandal, and that, that doesn't really have anything to do with their opinion about stem cell research, for example. Um, first of all, many listeners wrote in to point out that Giles Corey is the, from Salem, Massachusetts. Rebecca, you weren't on the show. You probably would have picked this up. I was not. I totally would have nailed that. Yeah, F-Y-I. I know you were going to say that. <laughs> and he, that he was, <laughs> he was uh, a historical character from the witch trials, and actually a character in The Crucible, and he was convicted of witchcraft um, through spectral evidence. I mean, the, the, the witnesses basically said, he appeared to me in a vision. You know, that was the evidence against him. And he was executed by piling stones on top of him and crushing him to death. Ooh, that's, uh, I, that's what I understand. Well, that so, was the norm. Uh, that's how yeah. one of them went. Yeah, that was one of the... Sounds like a lot of work. It's still a bad way to go. Well, the thing is, they would put the stones on one by one and say, confess, 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 and either you confessed or you died. But of course, if yeah, you confessed... Yeah, at some point, you really can't they, say much at all. So. Yeah, if you confessed, they would kill you too, so it's really pointless. Depending those, on how they would kill you. Those witch hunts. Well, so, if you confessed and uh, also offered the names of two of your friends or neighbors, then they would let you go. Uh, but anyway, I emailed Giles, and he did confess that this is a pseudonym that he uses when discussing this topic because it's a little inflammatory. So just, I thought it might have been some other guy also with the same name. Wouldn't, not impossible. But he said it was a pseudonym. But the thing I really want to talk about was that in the email, he talked – he wrote – asking if we were committing the genetic fallacy. Now, I assumed that he meant that this was a generic fallacy, like an ad, just like a non-sequitur kind of fallacy. Uh, but I was mistaken. There actually is a fallacy called the genetic fallacy, um, which is interesting on a couple levels. One is that um, as a physician, I hear people make the generic slash genetic mistake all the time. So I was prepared to assume that he that he was just a, was a typo or just made that mistake. I, mean, I literally hear it all the time. I got one of them generic diseases. I know I think you mean genetic disease, uh, but um, I I had never heard of the genetic fallacy, or I or if I had, I didn't remember it. But there is a genetic fallacy, which is also interesting when you get into the etymology of the word genetic, because I tend to think of it as just referring to genes, but but genetic actually. So that word has a, a, a more general meaning. Meaning, do you guys know what it is? Something that that is a, an an inherent part of something else, a, a basic p- part of it something. Means, it means pertaining to origins, like Genesis. Mm. Uh-huh. Yeah. So the the genetic fallacy is a fallacy of of referring to origins and right. uh, it's which is a which is a, a, a good one to add to the list so for example it's uh, a, a fallacy you commit when you um, say that you know somebody is wrong or 
uh, is uh, not virtuous or not worthy because of some aspect of their of their origins. And you it's were born of, out of wedlock, therefore your argument stinks. Yeah, or to say like you know Darwin was a drunkard, therefore, which is not true. I'm just saying as an example. He said Darwin was a drunkard, therefore evolution is not true. That would be a genetic fallacy. Another example I encountered was, you know, America will never will never be an organized society. Just look at its rebellious origins, you know, which doesn't really have anything to do with anything. So I, I, I don't think what Giles was referring to, our behavior that he was that he was pointing out, was a genetic fallacy. You know, we weren't saying. You know, if we said like, "Oh, the the church was wrong back in the Middle Ages," you know, they in, in, engaged in the right. Crusades and you know, oppressing scientific discovery. Therefore, anything they have to say today is not valid. That would be a genetic fallacy, and which is a subset of the ad hominem fallacy, which is any time when you say that an argument's wrong because of some negative attribute that somebody has, and in this case, a negative attribute that they had. Sometime in the past tense, it, it it also could apply to um, to words. So, for example, if a word has an origin in another meaning, and he, and here's uh, one that I've actually encountered before. Now I'm glad I have a name to go with it. So, for example, at one point in time on the show, we mentioned that Perry had passed away, and we actually got a couple of emails accusing us of perpetrating or perpetuating belief in the afterlife because we use the term passed away as if that necessarily implies belief in an afterlife. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Remember that? And my point was, no, it doesn't imply that at all. I could see if I said passed over because there's really no other way to interpret that. But Passed on. Or maybe, but even passed on is kind of in the gray zone. The yeah. point is that even if those words have their origin in a belief right. in the afterlife, now yeah. they mean dead. It's a colloquialism. That's, that's all that yeah. they mean, and there is no you know using that term does not in any way endorse some original meaning. And I think at the time I used it as an example when I say that that the sun rises, I'm not endorsing. A geocentric, you know, or a view of the universe. Yeah, um, um, that, right. that, yeah, that phrase has its origin in that belief. You know, I'm not going to start saying, "Oh, the Earth has rotated to the, you know, to to bring the sun above the horizon." Uh, I'd like to mention that every Thursday I am actually honoring Thor. Okay. <laughs> 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 right. I don't want people to be yes. confused. Skeptics say, oh, my God, all the time. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. It, 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 here's a gray zone. I'm going to give you a word that's in the gray zone. Hysteria. Okay. Now, the, the word... Uh, oh, hysterectomy. Yeah, yeah it has... It depends t- on what situation you use it in. If it's anything related to a woman freaking out, <laughs> then don't use it. Just don't. But the word, I mean, most me people... me off, and then I will go hysterical. 1899. A woman suffering from hysteria. Lock her away. Yes. So it has its its origin in the in the uh, the, the term for womb or uh, and uh, like hysterectomy, yeah, the same kind of Latin origin or maybe Greek, whatever for 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 womb. <laughs> and it was it, it did lead directly from the belief that women would have um, symptoms and emotional sort of psychological illnesses that actually derived from their womb. 
so it, wow. it actually derived from a very pseudoscientific misogynistic belief you know about women but the word has been totally colloquialized into meaning just you know freaking out you know don't become funny yeah yeah yeah, I mean, that's true. Right. Oh, so, wow. You know what? You ever have that moment where you you realize that a word has more than one meaning and you kind of, the two yeah. of them kind of collide in hysterical your head? That just hysterical. happens. This happened with me with the word hysterical. But I have to say, in the medical culture, it's now frowned upon to use the term hysteria to refer to uh, psychogenic symptoms. You know, now we say psychogenic, not hysterical, because of the, the, the roots of that word, the implication that. The, the sort of misogynistic implication. So I think that one's a little bit in the gray zone. But in colloquial use, I don't think you're going to hold people to the etymology of that word. Isn't that fascinating? That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. So I can use that word at liberty yeah. without any consequences? Just not in reference to no. your patient. Uh, didn't I just say that you cannot? <laughs> I'm, I'm learning so much at this show. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious. And I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Is everyone ready for this week? Yes. Let's do it. All right. Here we go. Item number one. Scientists have discovered a species of fish that live entirely without oxygen. Item number two. A theoretical astrophysicist has proposed that our entire universe resides within a wormhole connected to a black hole. And item number three, an engineering student has developed a system for controlling electronic devices by tapping on one's own skin. Rebecca, go first, please. Here's the thing. Um, <laughs> Just get to it, I'll, woman. I'll take them in reverse order. Uh, an engineering student developing a system for controlling electro- electronic devices by tapping on one's own skin. This is something that has been theorized for Ages, ages and ages. Um, and I've seen some really interesting concept art for it. So, developed a system doesn't necessarily imply that he's built it. So, that's certainly within the realm of possibility. A theoretical astrophysicist proposing that our entire universe resides within a wormhole connected to a black hole. Um, uh, what, what you haven't mentioned here is that the black hole is inside a snow globe, which is inside <laughs> those Russian nesting dolls. Um, this is obviously true because it's a theoretical astrophysicist. And as we know, those guys are not tied down to anything. Um, they can come up with pretty much any bizarre theory they want. And it gets published, especially, you know, the more bizarre, the better. And um, I believe I've heard some rumblings in the past about the idea of what might be happening inside of a black hole and how uh, an outside observer can never tell what's going on inside a black hole. So there could exist within a black hole an entire universe. So, yeah, that that could certainly be true. <laughs> Scientists discovered a species of fish that live entirely without oxygen. Um now, this is very interesting because I can accept the idea of uh, a multicellular organism that can live without oxygen in extreme environments on Earth. 
and even in the water. But I'm not sure if such an animal would necessarily qualify as a fish. And so I'm kind of torn. It's either it's definitely either that one or something weird with the engineering student one. <laughs> is a like it's a sponge of fish? Can can anybody help me out with that? Like, does that count as a, a fish? Sponge is Sorry, not so a fish. It's a sponge. Would you no. eat a sponge? Okay. No. Well, I'm just trying to think of animals that live in the water that aren't aren't fish, you know, but aren't bacteria or you know things like that. I learned that watching SpongeBob. That SpongeBob is a <laughs> oh I forget cartoon Darnold. for children. Yes. Oh, oh um, you, the, you clearly have not watched SpongeBob. SpongeBob. Interestingly, about sponges, that uh-huh. uh, sponges are not metazoans. Did you know that? Not really? metazoans? I don't even know Met- what that means. Metazoans are all multicellular animals except sponges. Oh. That's awesome. But they are How animals. How cool is that? Yes, they're non metazoan animals. Huh. Well, anyway, I'm saying what about, that. Can I finish, Bob, please? <laughs> Okay. Enough about SpongeBob SquarePants. <laughs> Don't get hysterical. <laughs> oh, I will punch you, Evan. Um, <laughs> Not from there. <laughs> I'll punch you in one week at Nexus. Oh, damn it! Right. Okay. Sorry. So, in conclusion, I believe that you <laughs> are being therefore... sneaky with with the first one, and that I, th- that there is not a species of fish. That can live without oxygen. That that is fake. You are a dirty liar. Okay. <laughs> okay, Bob. Yeah, I mean, Rebecca did pretty well with this one. She actually said a lot of what I was going to say, uh, and I'm not just saying that. Um, the uh, the engineering student, yeah, controlling a device using the you know the conductance of the skin. Yeah, I mean, I've seen. I haven't. I didn't read anything about that, but but yeah, I've I've, I've read other things. You know, quite a while ago about. About uh, exchanging information that way, uh, so yeah, so that kind of makes sense to me that that could be done. The second one is just is just too cool to be fiction. What an awesome, awesome idea that is! Now you you use the word propose, which to me is a pretty critical word there. Um, uh, you can, I mean you can just you can propose so many different things, and we've read some pretty quirky pr- proposals. How cool would that be though if if they somehow were able to show that our entire universe is somehow existing inside of a wormhole, which to me is better than actually within a black hole because I don't know the whole tidal force thing just kind of kills it for me with with black holes, but the wormhole. The wormhole being a connection between a black hole and a supposed white hole, which of course I've got problems with a white hole too. But uh, but this is just too cool uh, not to be a, a serious proposal. So I'm going to go with that one. I can't wait to read about it. Um, so the first one, yeah, uh, this is easy. This is easy for me. Uh, if you are a fish, then you have to. There's no way you're going to get rid of a need of oxygen. If you do away with oxygen, you are pretty much in. in from the way I see it, not a fish. I mean, your whole metabolism would have to be adjusted, and you wouldn't be a fish anymore. So that, that, I got to say that's fiction. Okay, Evan? Well, um, controlling electronic devices by tapping on one's own skin, very plausible. And then the one with the wormhole connected to the black hole. Do, Wormholes is, connected I, I to am the not black up hole? On my, I'm not up on my wormhole theoretical books and so forth. So are wormholes supposedly always connected to black holes? Is that supposed to be something special in this case? Or is that a given to That's begin a good with question. when you say wormhole? Is, I, sorry, we can't help you, Evan. What? I, I rely on you guys for this kind of <laughs> stuff. 
Um, and I agree with Bob, the word proposed is the key there, because I'm sure theoretical astrophysicists propose lots of things all the time. Why not this one? So I think it's very exactly. plausible. And because all that leaves is our friend the fish that lives entirely without oxygen, that cannot be correct. That must be fiction. Alrighty, Jay. I'll take science of fiction for a thousand. <laughs> Regarding the fish living without oxygen, do I remember reading something where, you know, fish, like when they hibernate or something, maybe they can go for a spell without oxygen or, you know, the temperature drops incredibly low or they freeze or something, something along those lines. But I kind of agree with everybody else. Like, I just don't see how they could go entirely without oxygen because if that's true, then uh, they would be operating on a different, completely different system. So anyway, I think that one is the fake. All right. So we'll take them in reverse order, since you guys are doing that. An engineering student has developed a system for controlling electronic devices by tapping on one's own skin. You guys all bought that one. And that <laughs> one is science. Science. Now... This is uh, Chris Harrison, third-year PhD student at Carnegie Mellon University in Carnegie Mellon University's Human Computer Interaction Institute. Apparently, a very innovative guy, and he developed a system which he calls Skinput. <laughs> no, no, I'm gonna have to. <laughs> yeah, you know that's, where this that's, is going. The best, someone from Carnegie Mellon. Mellon that's the pornographic Mellican. version. Uh, um, now, Bob, it does not use the electrical conduct- conductance of the skin. What do you think? Really? It might use. Yeah. Interesting. It uses the oil on your skin. Uh, the your hairs, blood. fibers. You're tapping on the skin. That's that's the key there. It's using sound waves. Yes. Oh, the, oh the, the sound. Difference, the, yeah, so it's using a system that detects the conduction of sound through the skin and the deeper tissues, and at different places on like your forearm, for example, that sound would have a different signature, and then he developed essentially the software, the processing, to uh, distinguish, to learn how to distinguish among various different sound signatures that so that you could use... So if you had like a display sprawled across your forearm, you can use them just by hitting your forearm to actually activate the different inputs. At, at present, it's a fairly bulky device, but you know, with, with miniaturization, I hope to, to get it to something the size of, say, a wristwatch or something that you could be, could comfortably wear. Although very, cre- very yeah, creative, it's interesting. I think you know, it, it's one of those things where once you perfect the technology, we'll see what how it actually gets used. Yeah, uh, you know, if you have to actually wear a device, why not just have a device that directly takes inputs? You know, rather than use this modality. I'm not sure what the what the advantage would be. Uh, right now, he says he has the system to, at best, 96% accuracy. Not bad. With uh, with tapping and 97% with finger flicking, f- flicking different fingers. So what's the point? That, that this is a new way to interact with your electronic devices. So I would be wearing, like, what, a watch or something? Yeah. Tap on my well, head? Uh, yeah, something something like that. Right now, again, it's it's kind of a bulky device, but... If you can skin slim put, it down. Really? Skin put, yeah, skin put. Skin put. It's awful. Let's go on to number two. A theoretical astrophysicist has proposed that our entire universe resides within a wormhole connected to a black hole. Uh, and when I mean proposed, I mean like you know in the peer-reviewed literature. And this one <laughs> is... Yeah, he said that. Science. Science. This one is... Awesome. Science. You know, the thing okay. is, I, I wanted to talk about this item, and I wanted to make it the fiction... 
but I just couldn't figure out how to make this one fiction because I couldn't figure out what to say that I knew was wrong. Why did you, you say it was I mean? connected to two black holes? <laughs> you should have said a homeopath proposed. <laughs> yes. So, but this is an interesting story. You I mean, could this say within a within an event horizon of a black hole. Well, whatever. This is whatever. Nikodem <laughs> Peplosky, and in Physics Letters B, he uh, proposed that it's possible that within within black holes, and not just a specific kind of black hole, but the either the Schwarzschild and the Einstein-Rosen types of black holes, that uh, there should reside a little baby universe inside the wormhole that connects the black hole to a white hole. Which then, if you extrapolate, that means that our universe can be embedded in a far greater you know, wormhole connected to a huge black hole. Talk about nested dolls, jeez. Yeah, so... Talk about theoretical, though, come on. But this could potentially solve some problems, and that's what theoretical physics or astrophysics is all about, right? It's trying to come up with new ways of configuring things that that resolve paradoxes or mathematically work out, you know, how to actually confirm it empirically is, you know, for somebody else. You resolve a problem, how about saying that we don't live anywhere near a wormhole or a black hole? That, that would resolve some problems. No, uh, no, it's, it's saying our entire universe is within was in another a mega wormhole. Yeah, everything. Um, so what if that wormhole collapses? Then we're all effed, right? Then we're effed. Yeah. Now, Bob, do, do you know what one of the what one of the paradoxes this may resolve? Um, See how up you are in your black hole cosmology. Not the uh, not the information yeah, information good, theory. Good yeah, job. the information <laughs> the information Whoa. paradox. Yeah. There's, a, there's a paradox about what happens to information of stuff that gets sucked into a black hole, <laughs> uh, because it, the, no matter how you try to resolve it, does the information get destroyed, which isn't supposed to happen? Is it is it uh, preserved, and if so, how? And what are you, know, you talking all, about? What do you mean the information gets destroyed? Well, let, let's say for example, you have a uh, you create a particle antiparticle with with balanced and quantumly linked properties but one of them gets sucked into a black hole now you that creates an asymmetry because you had these like spin up and spin down but the spin down got sucked into a black hole if that spin down information is destroyed Mm-hmm. then that violates certain principles of quantum mechanics. So the problem is quantum mechanics isn't jibing with you know, oh. the, the, the relativity as to, you know, a black hole as described according to Einsteinian relativity. There are a number of proposed fixes, but they all yeah, have... Yeah, Hawking radiation. Yeah, but they right? all have problems. None of them is perfect. But this is one of the solutions, that the information goes into a little baby universe somewhere inside the black hole. Yeah. And so this would actually resolve this information paradox about black holes. Oh. It's not. Or it's not destroyed. It's inaccessible. Black holes and never have to worry about this. <laughs> right. That that is. But the, but the thing is, but that means that <laughs> I need so to our, try to fit that in. Thanks. That our universe, the lifetime of our universe, then would be strictly limited to to the lifetime of the existence of that black hole, which is finite because Hawking radiation just to- eventually depletes. Depletes the the mass of the of the black hole, but if, if we're nested all the way up, then eventually one of those black holes, just by chance, will have will be near its, the end of its life, and then it, it collapses them all all the wormholes all the way down, destroying countless universes. Nice. So <laughs> so wait, hold on a second, Bob, before you get too upset, Bob. Before you get too upset, okay, because it's in a black hole, and 
and you know, as I've read, there's no way to exit a black hole once you've entered it. We'll never know the answer to this. So there we you don't go. Know. So well, don't I don't know about it. The information could be encoded in Hawking radiation. Who you know? Who knows how they how? They, or maybe certain constants of our universe would kind of point to the fact that yeah, that constant would have to be that way only if we were inside a wormhole. Who knows? There yeah, could yeah. be some subtle way they could yeah, they, they could verify this, which would be so cool. Imagine such a fundamental aspect of the universe like that. Something that we were totally unaware of, and like wow, yeah, that's one of the ultimate you know. Uh, realities yeah, of the universe. That'd be pretty cool. <laughs> now, Bob, this, the article also says that this potentially resolves some problems with the Big Bang Theory, but um, they didn't go into any details, and I couldn't mm. really figure out what that was. But So, they, you know, this, this has potential. But, you know, again, this is Very one cool. guy proposing kind of an, you know, a, a zany idea. We'll have to see what happens to it once it gets through the, the mill of, of theoretical astrophysical yeah. peer review. Uh, but I thought it was, it was kind of a... Interesting. Headline. Love it. Yeah. Which means that we scientists have that. discovered a species of fish that live entirely without oxygen is completely bogus. Yeah, the whole baby. thing is made up, or is there a partial truth no. here? There's always a partial, partial truth, isn't, truth, isn't there? So, what do you think the partial truth is? The partial that truth is they can go animals. They can go without oxygen found. temporarily, or something. No, uh, Rebecca, not a fish. Rebecca's so, right. I mean, and some, you, you you read this right? Because when you were too spot on. No. I'm, uh, this I'm is, a zoologist. Oh, they, they, this I was, discovered them. I almost made. The, I wanted this one to be one of the facts, but I couldn't figure out how to make the other one fiction. That scientists have discovered the first multicellular animal that is uh, can live entirely without oxygen. Previously, they've only discovered bacteria and algae and viruses. Right. right? So anaerobics. This, this is actually a multicellular animal, a lorisiferin, in the a. Uh, um, a species of the genus Spinoloricus. Now, yeah. interestingly, they found that this orga- this creature has organelles like mitochondria mm-hmm. that enable it to live without oxygen, to make energy without without the need for oxygen. In fact, what does it use? It has organelles that can make energy from hydrogen. Oh. Ah. Hydrogen. Really? Wow. They found that they possess organelles called hydrogenosomes. And end anaerobic forms of mitochondria that can make energy from hydrogen or, or anaerobic so no, without oxygen. So no ATP? No ATP? You can make ATP without, without oxygen. Parties. Really? We, we make ATP without oxygen. You know, we Anaerobically? Do, you, you burn. Yeah, there's anaerobic glycolysis where you make energy, a little bit of energy from sugar uh, without oxygen. But then those breakdown products, uh, lactic acid being the primary one, then goes into the Krebs cycle, then makes a lot of energy when you combine it with oxygen. So, Would you rather never have to breathe again or never have to eat again? Breathe. Breathe. Oh, breathe. Rather. Breathe. Food is so yummy. That's an easy one. Breathing is overrated. So, Jay, do you have a quote for us this week? This, uh, this quote was sent to me by Amy Collar Anderson on Facebook. And uh, she actually did a ton of quote research for me and, and had a Quite a few cool ones, but this this one this one I thought was very provocative. So this one's going to be super awesome. This is from Arthur C. Clarke. Sometimes I think we're alone in the universe, and sometimes I think we're not. In either case, the idea is quite staggering. Arthur C. Clarke. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I, agree. I mean, imagine. You know, I've always just been under the idea that we share the universe with other intelligent life forms or of some kind. But imagine if we were it. Yeah. That's, How amazing that's per- is that? Yeah, that's that puts you know it almost makes us more special in a way. You just think yeah, about it. Yeah, like, ab- absolutely. Jeez, you know, by definition. Yeah, I mean you think about it. 
um, it's quite possible. <laughs> it's quite possible that you know that our existence is extraordinary. That a lot of things had to just happen to line up in order to produce a technological species like us, and maybe it is so darn unlikely that it would be plausible for it to happen only once in our universe. I, I think that that's probably not true. Yeah, but, I agree. But it's not inconceivable, you know, that... Um, no. Inconceivable. And someone's yeah. got to be first, but still... And someone's yeah. got to be first you know, for the other thing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's too it's much real to be, estate out there. It's true, but again, maybe it's so unlikely... And then there's maybe we weren't first, but, you know, the timing didn't quite match up. I mean, yeah. that to me is the biggest thing you're talking mm. about. Yeah, yeah. There may only be one at a time. time, yeah. So thank you all for joining me this week. Thank you, Dr. Oh, thank Steve. You. It's welcome. good to be joined to you. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kinetto and is used with permission. Yeah.